This is Jewish Board Talk with Cherie Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. Earlier this week, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky addressed the British Parliament in a surprise visit to the UK. In his only third international trip since the war began on the morning of the 24th of February 2022, he asked for, and I quote, powerful English planes. What does this tell us about the current state of affairs? There's no better person to answer this question than my former colleague, the former presenter of the show and the head African Governance and Diplomacy Program and the Russia-Africa Project at the South African Institute of International Affairs, Stephen Gruz. Stephen, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Cherise. You don't have to say all this every time I come that I, that, uh, uh, I started the show. So, Steve, I have to say that I'm still using your format, still, um, still using our shared Google Doc. I still date the <laughs> counting down the numbers of shows. Everything's the same as yours, so I have to make reference to you, especially when I talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Ukraine, Russia, it's almost the first year commemorating that uh, invasion. It's quite unbelievable. Uh, I think at the start nobody thought that we'd be sitting here in February 2023 uh, expecting and waiting for the anniversary of the invasion. I mean, so much has happened since then. It's It's gotten complex. Uh, you've had... Uh, the Russian explanation for what's going on. You've had the Ukrainian explanation. You've had the American and European explanation. And, of course, it's also been a conflict that has gone beyond its region and it has had an effect for sure on other parts of the world, including our own, and has placed our government uh, having to make some choices. Stephen, we're going to come to our government right, right at the end. But before then... Did everybody know that this was going to be a drawn-out war, or did people think it was going to be quick? Uh, Most people thought it would be over in a couple of days, including President Putin. Um, He thought that the regime would just uh, fold and uh, Zelensky would probably flee the country. Uh, So it was almost a a blitzkrieg uh, at the beginning of the war, the first few days of February and March. Uh, Russia was hitting the country hard all over, not only in the eastern part, and uh, most observers thought that you know the might of the Russian army would overrun uh, little Ukraine, but uh, Ukrainians are fighting for their very survival. In fact, uh, Zelensky said uh, to his soldiers that they must fight like Israelis, um, where you, there just isn't another option. And so I think the the troops have been very brave, um, and and Russia's run into logistical problems, weather problems, and of course uh, the West has been arming Ukraine as well. So. As it depletes its uh, weapon stocks, it, it gets more. As you, you said in your intro, they're looking now for planes. Uh, they've got a whole lot of promises of tanks from, from many European countries. So whereas Russia may have overrun them, they now have an arsenal and uh, are wanting to hit back and are very ambitious that they're going to get back their territories, including Crimea, which was uh, illegally annexed by the Russians in 2014, so already eight years ago. That's a big ask, and that would change the nature of the war if if they were to go on the offensive on that front. I remember when the war started, apart from the initial shock, that uh, I I started learning words such as Mariupol and the Donbass and things I'd never kind of thought Mm. much about. A year later, not many people were actually talking about it. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, that's the new cycle. Things, things come and go. I mean, there's been a lot of preoccupation this week, for example, on the, uh, the earth, earthquake oh, in Turkey and yes, Syria. Yes, yes. Um, but it hasn't gone away. I think, you know, the big, the big news channels are, are having daily updates. 
Um, it's certainly the fighting hasn't died down. I happened to get a email from the Ukrainian embassy in South Africa that updates how many tanks, how many uh, civilian casualties, how many Russian casualties, speeches from Zelensky. They put it out on a daily basis, and the numbers are, are slowly going up. So it's by no means died down. I think the European winter caused a bit of a retraction of, of fighting on the front, but uh, as the spring starts to come, uh, we're going to see an intensification, unfortunately. And what now is everybody's end goal? So do they want to win? Do they want well, let's, to? Let's talk Russia. Okay. What, do, what do they want? I think Russia has staked such a lot on this war that um, it it feels that it can't pull back, that it can't uh, terminate the war. Whereas actually it could. It could mm. it could call its troops back to Moscow tomorrow. But it's saving face. Um, it's sending a message to the other uh, former Soviet republics, including the Baltic states. Um, and he's mired in this uh, situation where he can't afford to lose. Ukraine also can't afford to lose because it's their sovereignty, it's their territorial integrity, it's uh, a third of their country, of their territory, um, and they have the support of the West. And so they think they can win. Uh, I don't know if the Russians still think they can win, but obviously, obviously they do because they're still in this war. And... Uh, on it goes to to the surprise of of many. I mean, a year ago I wouldn't have said that it would have lasted a year, but now people are saying it's going to last several years. It might become a frozen conflict, like for example, uh, Russia Georgia, where when they went to war in, in two thousand and eight, it's still rumbling on. It's still unresolved. So, what went wrong for Russia? If everybody thought it would be over quickly, and it wasn't. So I'm not a military tactician, but those that are have said that um, it completely under, underestimated Ukraine's strength. It completely underestimated the united resolve of the Western world to get involved in this conflict without uh, it spreading. Um, so I think some battlefield generals uh, were probably off the mark. I mean, you know, what we did see was – at one point, uh, apart from the initial uh, missile strikes, etc., that it was, it looked like a conventional war where there is a front, where you have your troops at one point and the other, the other side is is not far away, and there was a front. And then uh, Putin changed generals, and the second, the new guy who came in. Uh, basically said we've got to target infrastructure. And so that's where you saw all the electricity stations and dams and roads being uh, being hit. And there isn't a front. In fact, Russian planes can fly right across Ukraine and, and, and their missiles as well. So that's why Zelensky is so desperate for uh, for anti-aircraft anti, um, missiles and, and planes. And, uh, you know, those are not cheap commodities. So what um, what can bring them out of this impasse that it doesn't carry on? Is it Sweden? Is it NATO? What are the roles? Gosh, I mean, the most successful mediator so far has been Turkey. Uh, Turkey and the UN have managed to uh, create a – it's called the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which allows Ukrainian grain ships – to exit the Black Sea. That's one of the only diplomatic bright spots. And by the way, it was African countries who asked for this in the first place, and the head of the African Union went to Moscow to speak to Putin about it, and a couple of weeks later, this deal was struck. You know, they talk about conflicts being ripe for resolution. It's usually when one or both realize they can't win. I think, unfortunately, at this stage, both think that they can still win or that there's still a military solution. 
And But, you know, many have said Russia could pull its troops back tomorrow, and that would end the war because Ukrainian troops are not on Russian territory. Um, it's not so simple. Steve, globally, every, does everybody still have an interest internationally in this war? And we do, well, we're going to come to South Africa after. I'm leaving. I'm really leaving South Africa till last. But, like, where are the global players on this now? Well, on the one side, you have NATO, which some have said is a relic of the Cold War and shouldn't exist. That's what the Russians say. But uh, former Soviet states were very keen and eager to join NATO uh, when the opportunity was was offered to them. Trump wanted to kind of get rid of NATO and, and um, made enemies or, 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 or ruffled the feathers of his allies. Um, under Biden, I think NATO now is stronger than ever. It's more united than ever. Um, and and countries are wanting to join it, like Finland and Sweden, um, which are which are going to exceed and for years have had a, an independent military policy. On the other side, you have the BRICS countries, Brazil, uh, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Many countries in the developing world are either abstaining or calling themselves neutral or calling themselves non-aligned. Some have supported the Western position. Many have not. Uh, many have been uh, abstaining in the United Nations when the, when, when the Ukraine issue has come up. So it, we've, we're looking at a divided world. I think we're going to take the break now and then look at Israel and its particular role and how it feels about this, and then we'll go to South Africa. This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. And I'm talking to Stephen Grust, Head African Governance and Diplomacy Program and the Russia-Africa Project of the South Africa International Affairs. Did I get that right, Stephen? Almost. South African Institute. South African Institute of International Affairs. Thank you very much. Something sounded wrong. Stephen, right. Israel. What's Israel's relationship with Russia at the moment and the Ukraine? So Israel's relationship has been very close to Russia, particularly in Netanyahu's, uh, what was actually his second time of being prime minister. But uh, Israel was one of the countries that, that probably spoke to President Putin the most during the second Netanyahu term. And of course, he's now back in power. Israel has to keep, it believes, Russia on side and uh, open, open communications with because of Syria. Because Israel is operating in Syria and Russia is operating in Syria. Israel's, uh, active against Hezbollah and other Palestinian, uh, groups or pro-Palestinian groups, uh, with the support of Iran. And it's, it, it, it you know, they, 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 it's an active theater of, of conflict. And so Israel can't afford, it believes, to alienate the Russians. Of course, there's over a million Russian emigres that came to Israel in the 1990s and, and really built up the country. Uh, Putin has said that he considers it part of the Russian world. But of course, I think there's also a lot of sympathy for Ukraine and a lot of uh, recognition in civil society and among other political parties that uh, this is uh, there's a moral dimension to this conflict and that Russia is clearly on the wrong side of, of this and that there must be sympathy. And so it was a little bit more ambiguous when uh, Bennett and Lapid were uh, prime ministers in the government that's just fallen. Uh, and, and at times, Bennett was closer to Putin and Lapid was closer to uh, Zelensky. And it's a bit of a mixed masala. Does Russia still have energy for proxy wars in Syria? 
Yes, um, it's still propping up Assad. I mean, we don't hear much about the Syrian conflict, but it's by no means uh, resolved. And Russia also uses it as a theater to test weapons, to uh, blood new uh, uh, mercenaries. So, yeah, it's still it's still raging in Syria, much uh, that it's out out of the headlines or, or you know, it's it, it's he's, he's there to to keep Assad in power. Uh, and and uh, uh, loyalty between Syria and uh, Moscow. Uh, Russia has one of its only warm water part, ports uh, in in Syria, for example. And Turkey? Oh no, no, we can't. We can't have Turkey because it's really now late, and we have to talk about South Africa. Okay, okay South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, South Africa. So officially, uh, we say that we have. Uh, a non-aligned position, yet uh, next week we are going to be conducting military exercises with China and Russia. We did this first in 2019, but this is not well-timed. This is going to coincide with the one-year anniversary of the war and is going to draw flak to South Africa probably uh, on a scale unanticipated. I mean, I've, I know that all the major newspapers are planning a big uh, expose, a big story, big stories on this because it is a big story. I mean, South Africa... Um, at one point considered itself a mediator, but I don't think it ever put the resources or the energy into that, and I think we've got our own problems. Um, we, we had Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, here a couple of weeks ago, and he seemed very tight with Minister Pandor. Uh, when asked, when she was asked by Peter Fabricius, uh, the veteran journalist, whether South Africa had repeated to Lavrov our statement on the 24th of February 2022, which said Russia must withdraw its troops from Ukraine. Uh, had she repeated it, she said no, that would be infantile. And in fact, uh, the West is arming Ukraine, so it's a totally different situation. What, what does South Africa want from Russia? <clears throat> I think South Africa likes being part of the BRICS. Uh, it likes being considered a leader of the developing world, of the global south. Um, it buys into Russia's neo-colonial uh, and anti-colonial narrative that it was a, a, a country that never colonized Africa and has forced, fought with liberation movements across the continent. Um, but it's not really business. Uh, our, our business links, our, our trade links with Russia are 20 times smaller than those with China, for example. Uh, America, U, the USA, Europe remain our major trading partners. So I think it's ideological. There's a strain of anti-Americanism in the ANC that has existed for decades. And sometimes their, their thinking is, is stuck in, you know, 1988. In terms, will America punish South Africa for its role? A lot of people have asked that question, and we, we don't know. Um, we, we just don't know. But, we, you know, I think time will tell as as the story progresses. I don't think America is not happy about these naval exercises. So, you know, who knows what trade dispute or um, diplomatic uh, me moves will, will happen. So I don't know. I mean, can South Africa basically eat its cake and have it too? Can it walk left and speak right? That's what it's trying to do. South Africa doesn't want to... Make, have to make a choice, so it's 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 choosing to do military um, activities with Russia, but it turned down the opportunity to do so with America uh, a couple of months ago. So, although it has done so in the past, and we had the Russian uh, foreign minister on one day, and we had the U.S. Tre Treasury Secretary the same week. So, trying to balance. I know it's not your new job anymore, but do you enjoy your new job, Steve? Yeah, I've been in my new job yeah. 10 years. So. so you've enjoyed it then? Yeah, I really do. It's, you it's travel the world. Uh, yeah. 
Uh, it's, I'm very grateful and uh, get to, you know, talk about how the world is, is working or not. Well, thanks for doing so on my show today. That was Stephen Groost. I'm not going to say that all again, except to say my former colleague and um, from the South African Institute of Race Relations.